Welcome to episode 78 of the Wiccan Read-Along podcast. This is your host, Phoenix the Reader. It's Sunday, July 7th, 2019, and the moon is waxing. This week, we're beginning chapter 6 of The Spiral Dance, a rebirth of the ancient religion of the great goddess by Starhawk. Let's get started. Chapter 6, The God. Between the Worlds, Invocation to the God. The priest steps into the center of the circle and picks up the drum. Beating a strong, pounding rhythm, he begins the chant. Seed sower, grain reborn, horned one, come. Other voices join his. Hands clap out the rhythm on bare thighs. Feet stamp the floor. There is one great shout. Ayo, evohe. Silence. A soft tenor begins to sing. Bright sun, dark death, lord of winds, lord of the dance, sun child, winter-born king, hanged one, untamed, untamed, stag and stallion, goat and bull, sailor of the last sea, guardian of the gate, lord of the two lands, ever-dying, ever-living, radiance, Dionysus, Osiris, Pan, Dumuzi, Arthur, Robin, Yanikot, How. Move us, touch us, shake us, bring us through. All is quiet. The priest sets down the drum and says simply, He is here. The coven echoes, He is here. Blessed be. I grow old, I grow old. I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaids singing each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. T.S. Eliot It is very much in style today to urge men to feel. However, this urging is partially reminiscent of taunting a crippled man to run. Herb Goldberg The image of the horned god in witchcraft is radically different from any other image of masculinity in our culture. He is difficult to understand because he does not fit into any of the expected stereotypes, neither those of the macho male nor the reverse images of those who deliberately seek effeminacy. He is gentle, tender, and comforting, but he is also the hunter. He is the dying god, but his death is always in the service of the life force. He is untamed sexuality, but sexuality as a deep, holy, connecting power. He is the power of feeling and the image of what men could be if they were liberated from the constraints of patriarchal culture. The image of the horned god was deliberately perverted by the medieval church into the image of the Christian devil. Witches do not believe in or worship the devil. They consider it a concept peculiar to Christianity. The god of the witches is sexual, but sexuality is seen as sacred, not as obscene or blasphemous. Our god wears horns, but they are the waxing and waning crescents of the goddess moon, and the symbol of animal vitality. 
In some aspects, he is black, not because he is dreadful or fearful, but because darkness and the night are times of power and part of the cycles of time. There have always been traditions of the craft in which the god is given little recognition. In the craft, separate women's mysteries and separate men's mysteries may be performed. But in most witch traditions, the god is seen as the other half of the goddess, and many of the rites and holidays are devoted to him as well as to her. In the medieval witch cult, the god may have obtained prominence over the goddess for a time. Most witch confessions speak of the devil, as the Christian priests transcribed the witch's words for their non-Christian god. Fewer mention the goddess, who is usually called the Queen of Elphame. However, the interrogators of witches were looking for evidence of devil worship, not goddess worship. They recorded evidence that supported their accusations of Satanism and ignored or twisted other evidence. Tortured suspects who reached the end of their endurance were often given already prepared statements to sign, which expressed what the Christian priests wished to believe rather than the truth. A common practice in the medieval craft was for the priest and priestess to enact the parts of God and Goddess, who were believed to be physically incarnate in the rites. One old account cited by Margaret Murray expresses the importance of this custom to illiterate peasants for whom seeing was believing. The priest mocked those who offered to trust in God who left them miserable in the world and neither he nor his son Jesus Christ ever appeared to them when they called on him, as he had who would not cheat them. For most witches, that earthly Sabbath was to her the true paradise, where there was more pleasure than she could express, and she believed also that the joy which she took in it was but the prelude to a much greater glory, for her God so held her heart that no other desire could enter in. In the women's movement, Dianic or separatist witchcraft has become the fashion, and some women may have difficulty understanding why a feminist would bother with the horned god at all. Yet there are few, if any, women whose lives are not bound up with men, if not sexually and emotionally, then economically. The horned god represents powerful, positive male qualities that derive from deeper sources than the stereotypes and the violence and emotional crippling of men in our society. If man had been created in the horned god's image, he would be free to be wild without being cruel, angry without being violent, sexual without being coercive, spiritual without being unsexed, and able to truly love. The mermaids, who are the goddess, would sing to him. The goddess is the encircler, the ground of being. The god is that which is brought forth, her mirror image, her other pole. She is the earth, he is the grain. She is the all-encompassing sky, he is the sun, her fireball. She is the wheel, he is the traveler. His is the sacrifice of life to death that life may go on. She is mother and destroyer, he is all that is born and is destroyed. For men, the god is the image of inner power and of a potency that is more than merely sexual. He is the undivided self, in which mind is not split from body, nor spirit from flesh.
united, both can function at the peak of creative and emotional power. In our culture, men are taught that masculinity demands a lack of feeling. They are conditioned to function in a military mode, to cut off their emotions and ignore the messages of their bodies, to deny physical discomfort, pain, and fear in order to fight and conquer most efficiently. This holds true whether the field of conquest is the battlefield, the bedroom, or the business office. It has become something of a cliché to say that men have been trained to be aggressive and dominant and women have been taught to be passive and submissive, that men are allowed to be angry and women are not. In patriarchal culture, both women and men learn to function within a hierarchy in which those at the top dominate those below. One aspect of that dominance is the privilege of expressing anger. The general chews out the sergeant, the private cannot. The boss is free to blow his stack, but not his assistant. The boss's wife yells at her maid, not vice versa. Because women have usually been at the bottom of hierarchies, from the business world to the traditional family, they have borne the brunt of a great deal of male anger and been the ultimate victims of violence. Anger can be seen as a response to an attack. Very few men are in positions where they can afford to directly confront their attackers. Men's anger, then, becomes twisted and perverted. It is threatening to recognize the true source of his rage because he would then be forced to recognize the helplessness, powerlessness, and humiliation of his position. Instead, he may turn his anger on safer targets, women, children, or still less powerful men. Or his anger may turn to self-destruction, disease, depression, alcoholism, or any of a smorgasbord of readily available addictions. Patriarchy literally means rule of the fathers. But in a patriarchy, very few men are allowed to enact the role of father outside the limited family sphere. The structure of hierarchical institutions is pyramidal. One man at the top controls many below. Men compete for money and power over others. The majority, who do not reach the top of the chain of command, are forced to remain immature, enacting the roles of either dutiful or rebel sons. The good sons eternally seek to please the father by obedience. The bad sons seek to overthrow him and take his place. Either way, they are cut off from their own true desires and feelings. And so our religions reflect a cosmos in which Father God exhorts his children to obey the rules and do what they are told, lest they align themselves with the great rebel. Our psychology is one of war between sons and fathers who eternally vie for exclusive possession of the mother, who, like all women under patriarchy, is the ultimate prize for success. And progressive politics are reduced to alignments of rebel sons who overthrow the father only to institute their own hierarchies. The horned god, however, is born of a virgin mother. He is a model of male power that is free from father-son rivalry or Oedipal conflicts. He has no father. He is his own father. As he grows and passes through his changes on the wheel, he remains in relationship to the prime nurturing force. His power is drawn directly from the goddess. He participates in her. The god embodies the power of feeling. His animal horns represent the truth of undisguised emotion 
which seeks to please no masters. He is untamed, but untamed feelings are very different from enacted violence. The god is the life force, the life cycle. He remains within the orbit of the goddess. His power is always directed toward the service of life. The god of the witches is the god of love. This love includes sexuality, which is also wild and untamed, as well as gentle and tender. His sexuality is fully felt in a context in which sexual desire is sacred, not only because it is the means by which life is procreated, but also because it is the means by which our own lives are most deeply and ecstatically realized. In witchcraft, sex is a sacrament, an outward sign of an inward grace. That grace is the deep connection and recognition of the wholeness of another person. In its essence, it is not limited to the physical act. It is an exchange of energy, of subtle nourishment between people. Through connection with another, we connect with all. In the craft, the male body, like the female body, is held sacred, not to be violated. It is a violation of the male body to use it as a weapon, just as it is a violation of the female body to use it as an object or a proving ground for male virility. To feign desire when it is absent violates the body's truth, as does repression of desire, which can be fully felt even when it cannot be satisfied. But to feel desire and longing is to admit need, which is threatening to many men in our culture. Under patriarchy, men, while encouraged to expect a great deal of nurturing care from women, are taught not to admit their need for nurturing, their need to be passive at times, to be weak, to lean on another. The god in witchcraft embodies longing and desire for union with the prime nurturing force. Instead of seeking unlimited mothering from actual living women, men in witchcraft are encouraged to identify with the god and, through him, to attain union with the goddess, whose mother love knows no bounds. The goddess is both an external and an internal force. When her image is taken into a man's mind and heart, she becomes part of him. He can connect with his own nurturing qualities with the inner muse who is a source of unfading inspiration. The god is Eros, but he is also Logos, the power of the mind. In witchcraft, there is no opposition between the two. The bodily desire for union and the emotional desire for connection are transmuted into the intellectual desire for knowledge, which is also a form of union. Knowledge can be both analytic and synthetic, can take things apart and look at differences, or form a pattern from unintegrated parts and see the whole. For women raised in our culture, the God begins as a symbol of all those qualities that have been identified as male and that we have not been encouraged to own. The symbol of the god, like that of the goddess, is both internal and external. Through meditation and ritual, a woman who invokes the god creates his image within herself and connects with those qualities she lacks. As her understanding moves beyond culturally imposed limitations, her image of the god changes, deepens. He is the creation, which is not simply a replica of oneself, but something different, of a different order. True creation implies separation, as the very act of birth is a relinquishment, 
a letting go. Through the God, the woman knows this power in herself. His love and desire stretch across the abyss of separation, taut as a harp string, humming one note which becomes the single song, the universe of all. That vibration is energy, the true source of power from within. And so the god, like the goddess, empowers woman. For both women and men, the god is also the dying god. As such, he represents the giving over that sustains life, death in the service of the life force. Life is characterized by many losses and, unless the pain of each one is fully felt and worked through, it remains buried in the psyche, where, like a festering sore that never fully heals, it exudes emotional poison. The dying god embodies the concept of loss. In rituals, as we enact his death over and over again, we release the emotions surrounding our own losses, lance the wounds, and win through to the healing promised by his rebirth. This psychological purging was the true purpose of dramatic tragedy, which originated, in Greece, out of the rites of the dying god Dionysus. In witchcraft, death is always followed by rebirth, loss by restitution. After the dark of the moon, the new crescent appears. Spring follows winter, day follows night. Not all witches believe in literal reincarnation. Many, like Robin Morgan, view it as a metaphor for that mystically cellular transition in which the dancer's DNA and RNA immortally twine themselves. But in a worldview that sees everything as cyclical, death itself cannot be a final ending, but rather some unknown transformation to some new form of being. In enacting and reenacting the death of the god, we prepare ourselves to face that transformation, to live out the last stage of life. The God becomes the comforter and consoler of hearts, who teaches us to understand death through his example. He embodies the warmth, tenderness, and compassion that are the true complement of male aggression. The dying God puts on horns and becomes the hunter, who meets out death as well as suffering it. Few of us today directly participate in life processes. We no longer raise or hunt our own meat, but get it plastic wrapped at the supermarket. It is difficult for us to understand the concept of the divine hunter, but in a culture of hunters, the hunt meant life, and the hunter was the life giver of the tribe. The tribe identified with its food animals. Hunting involved tremendous skill and knowledge of the habits and psychology of the prey. Animals were never killed needlessly, and no parts of the kill were wasted. Life was never taken without recognition and reverence for the spirit of the prey. Today, the only thing most of us hunt for regularly is parking places. But the hunter has another aspect, that of searching, of seeking. He embodies all quests, whether physical, spiritual, artistic, scientific, or social. His image is poemagogic. It both symbolizes and sparks the creative process, which is itself a quest. The god seeks for the goddess, as King Arthur seeks for the grail, as each of us seeks for that which we have lost and for all that has never yet been found. Like the goddess, the god unifies all opposites. As in the invocation that opens this chapter, 
He is both the bright sun, the light-giving, energizing force, and the darkness of night and death. The two aspects, as I have said before, are complementary, not contradictory, not contradictory. They cannot be identified as good and evil. Both are part of the cycle, the necessary balance of life. As Lord of Winds, the God is identified with the elements and the natural world. As Lord of the Dance, he symbolizes the spiral dance of life, the whirling energies that bind existence in eternal motion. He embodies movement and change. Let's leave off there in Chapter 6 of The Spiral Dance by Starhawk. Next time, we will continue the chapter on the God. If you'd like to follow me or send me a message on Twitter, I am at Wiccan Podcast. If you'd like to donate to help me cover the cost of books and my monthly SoundCloud subscription, please visit gofundme.com slash wicca. Thank you so much for your support. And thank you so much for listening to the Wiccan Read Along podcast. This is Phoenix the Reader signing out. Blessed be.